Welcome to Tempest Tossed. We're a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Elenikov. Today we continue with our series on new books on immigration with a book by Adam Cox and Christina Rodriguez entitled The President and Immigration Law. Adam Cox is a professor of law at NYU. Christina Rodriguez teaches at Yale Law School and both write about immigration law and constitutional law. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks so much for having us. So let me start with this. You know, when we think about exercises of presidential power over immigration, what may come to mind first is DACA, an act of President Obama, uh, and then the Muslim ban, one of the first things that the Trump administration did when they took office. And both these acts were condemned, DACA from the right and the Muslim ban from the left, as going beyond presidential power. The argument was that, look, Congress sets immigration rules and that these were acts of presidential legislation. Your argument in the book really says, otherwise. And here I'll quote a sentence from the book saying, the president and his administration have been architects of our immigration policy right along Congress from the beginning. Tell us what you meant by that and what the central argument is here. Our argument, in a nutshell, is that the temptation to see you know, these current fights over programs like DACA or over the travel ban as fights about the Trump administration or about our contemporary polarized politics is misguided because we do think that the roots of presidential control over American immigration policy are much, much deeper. A core part of our story is about kind of three interlocking changes that took place during the course of the 20th century that put the president in the driver's seat. The first was the rise of deportation and the turn towards a more probationary system of immigration law. You know, we went from a world where uh, deportation was hardly on the books and really just not used as a regulatory tool to a world in which the grounds of deportation are so numerous that they're difficult to count and where the system makes immigrants' rights to remain in America, even for green card holders, uh, contingent, you know, always under threat of being taken away. So the rise of deportation, we think, you know, intersected with Bureaucratic change, really an explosive growth in the enforcement bureaucracy. You know, early in immigration law's history, there was little enforcement for land borders. There was no border patrol before 1924. And even after our immigration agencies were created, they were seen as largely ineffectual, often feckless. Today, in contrast, we've got the Department of Homeland Security with an enormous budget, a budget that dwarfs the budget of all other federal law enforcement agencies combined, and the capacity to deport upwards of 400,000 non-citizens every year. That's more people that are incarcerated in the entire federal prison system. So that those two changes, the legal change that created the deportation state, the bureaucratic changes that gave us our modern enforcement machinery, they collided in the final third of the 20th century with rapidly rising rates of unauthorized immigration. The causes of those rises in unauthorized immigration are complicated and contested, but the consequences for us today are really clear. It left us with a world where nearly half of all non-citizens living in the United States are living here without legal permission. So that's nearly 11 million non-citizens living in the U.S. in violation of immigration law and therefore formally deportable. 
That means we basically have an enormous shadow immigration system that stands alongside the formal one. And in that system, the complex, you know, hundreds of pages long immigration code becomes less and less significant. And what matters more are the enforcement choices that are made by executive branch officials about when to enforce immigration laws and against whom. And that system delegates effectively tremendous power to the president who sits atop that enforcement machinery. So uh, I'm hearing your argument to be that, in fact, and I think you use this phrase, the president uh, and Congress have been co-principles in the creation of immigration law from the beginning at a time when Congress really didn't exercise much immigration law. And and the president, in fact, did exercise it through the treaty power. But in more recent days, it's the rise of this large undocumented population uh, that requires choices by the executive branch that are typically done by executive branch officers as to who should stay and who should go. Can you say more about what you mean by de facto delegation? What exactly is the power given to the president through this de facto delegation? So the power that Adam just described is the power to determine how the shadow system is going to function, which is basically the power to determine who will be deported and who will be allowed to remain and on what terms. And the the reason we use the concept of uh, delegation is because that power arises from the structure of the law, from the the provisions in the code that establish uh, who is removable and from the fact that Congress continually appropriates funds to the enforcement bureaucracy that Adam described to implement the immigration laws. The reason that we call it de facto delegation is because the enforcement discretion and the policy choices that are made through it that we describe are not expressly laid out in the statute. It's not as if there's a provision in the code uh, that says that the president shall have the power to decide whom to remove and whom to deport and on what grounds people may be allowed to stay. Um, It's instead a product of the structure of the law. Crucial to that is the unauthorized population and the size of that population and its its settlement in the United States over time. That is what makes the system a, a shadow system or what creates the the shadow system. It is worth underscoring that we do talk about forms of express delegation throughout the book, and those also play an important role historically in empowering the president. When we first started writing about this, actually, we focused on some of those uh, express forms of delegation through the way that presidents have used the parole power to manage uh, movements of refugees. And today, the Trump administration uh, has cast light on uh, an express provision in the code that really gives the president the power to effectively swallow it. And that's 212F of the INA that allows him to prohibit the entry of aliens or classes of aliens if he thinks it's in the interest of the United States. And past presidents have used it, but this administration has perfected that form of power uh, to advance their immigration vision, their immigration agenda. And so express delegations do exist and are relevant in our story, but it's this larger structure of the law that has uh, produced a shadow system and therefore the need for executive uh, decision-making that drives our story. So first of all, we should make clear the INA stands for the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is the central code of our immigration law here. Uh, Let me ask you two questions about this de facto delegation. First of all, Congress might say, you know, this is 
impermissible de facto delegation because we've tried to limit the president. We've amended the parole power several times to say you can't use it to keep letting lots of refugees and other uh, folks in. We through this, uh, we've told you that you've got to build a wall and secure the southern uh, border through several pieces of legislation. We've limited judicial review and made people mandatorily uh, detainable, made people mandatorily deportable. So we've really tried to limit your your power here. And so for you then to rely on on some kind of prosecutorial discretion to claim that you're a co-principal in immigration law really misstates the situation. How, how would you respond to that congressional claim? Well, I think there are actually you know, sets of decisions Congress has made that go in both directions. So first, I guess I want to resist the premise of the question a little bit, because even in moments where it seems like what Congress is doing is attempting to rein in executive branch discretion, what we see in practice and in reality is that it, it's more serving a function of channeling the exercise of discretion or locating the exercise of discretion within particular institutions. Let me just pick one example to kind of highlight that fact. For a long time, it was true that non-citizens who were found deportable could avoid deportation, um, first on a judicial order by a court and later also by a decision of um, an immigration judge to grant them um, a sort of suspension of their deportation. Now, in 1996, Congress decided to eliminate that form of relief for many, many non-citizens. And at the time, those changes were widely described as reducing the discretion in the system and making deportation mandatory for an ever larger number of non-citizens. In one sense, it is true. Immigration judges no longer had discretionary authority to grant relief from removal for a lot of non-citizens. But that didn't make the discretion go away. And members of Congress knew that it wouldn't make the discretion go away. Instead, what it did was it, it moved the exercise of discretion up the channel of the enforcement process to the charging stage, essentially. It, it gave that discretionary authority that previously was in the hands of judges, immigration judges, and handed it to enforcement agents and enforcement lawyers in ICE. Let me give you the second congressional claim, perhaps, to lodge against the idea of de facto uh, delegation, exactly who exactly created the shadow here, because one might say the increase in the undocumented population is in part or maybe largely a result of executive branch actions in terms of, as you describe in the book, starting and then ending the Bracero program, which gave rise to a large amount of uh, undocumented migration, and then the increased border enforcement, uh, which many scholars have argued has actually locked in the undocumented population that used to be a circular migration, but now becomes a resident uh, population. And so for the president to say, gee, we've got all these undocumented people here, and now I've got this de facto delegated power that really makes me a co-principal in the making of immigration law is really a kind of a, a bootstrap. He's created the situation or she's created the situation that then permits for this kind of presidential um, exercise of power. What's the answer to that congressional claim? I think the answer to that, Alex, is that both Congress and the executive have participated in the creation of this system. And that reinforces our claim that both branches are co-principals, not just in the decisions about how to manage the system, but 
our co-principles and its construction. And this, of course, happens through myriad decisions over time, some of which are coordinated between the two branches, some of which are not. Another good example of this that we discuss in the book is the way that executives over time have essentially taken the um, oomph out of the employer sanctions statute that was adopted in 1986, which if you look at it on the surface of the law, and if you if you read basic histories of that legislation, was meant to be an enforcement counterweight to the legalization program that Congress enacted at the same time. We legalized 3 million unauthorized immigrants who are here, and then we create enforcement mechanisms to deter them, namely by sanctioning the employers who are creating the job jobs magnet. Um, but with a, a few blips here and there, subsequent presidents, subsequent executive branches, I should say, have um, really significantly under-enforced that statute so that it doesn't play the role that you might have thought Congress wanted it to play. And yet, it's, I think, a reasonable account of the law that that could have been what Congress intended all along. There are compromises in the statute itself that make the law difficult to enforce. Congress doesn't try to correct for the failure to enforce efforts to make the administration of enforcement don't really succeed over time. And so it's it's all, you could say, part of a structure in which both branches are complicit in sustaining this shadow population. And there are many interests that might want the shadow population to be sustained. But given its existence, as, as Adam and I have both said, uh, because it's the executive branch that is in charge of the machinery that manages it, its its meets and bounds necessarily depend on the choices the executive makes. Yeah, so and that seems exactly right, and it's pretty clear from the employer sanctions legislation that the, the Congress knew that it wouldn't have any teeth because it, uh, because employers could accept any documents people came forward with unless they were absolutely clearly fraudulent documents and the like. And in fact, I guess that actually in some ways makes it worse because it says it then it gives Congress the ability to pass an, an unenforceable law and then blame the president when in fact it doesn't get enforced, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and there is, you know, th- there is this blame shifting account that you can ascribe to de facto delegation that Congress doesn't want the responsibility for either cutting off uh, unauthorized immigrant workers, or it doesn't want the responsibility for legalizing them, and instead uh, would rather have the executive branch make choices that facilitate the interests of employers, the immigrants themselves, um, and citizens who live in the United States who who might have family connections and the like. It's a very complex set of choices uh, that could be in Congress's interest to have the the executive make over time. In the second debate uh, between Trump and Biden, Biden said that one of the first things he would do uh, in office was to send a bill to Congress that would legalize the undocumented population. If, in fact, that were to occur and a major legalization program was put in place, I wonder if that would make you think a little bit differently about your conclusions in the following way. One, it would get rid of an awful lot of the shadow uh, population, which would mean that there'd be much less room for the de facto delegation uh, to move. But two, you'd have a a Senate and a House uh, united on a, on a particular set of goals, which might be clear and give the president a little bit less room to move. So I wonder to what extent the if the current political roadblocks and obstacles to legislation are removed, whether that will affect your overall theory in the book. If a legalization program were to pass, it would 
dramatically shrink the zone of discretion, and it would change the scope of the president's power as a matter of uh, fact in our present moment. Um, and yet that would not mean that the, the president lacked power over immigration policy or the capacity to shape immigration policy for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, the first is that a legalization program is likely to leave people behind. That certainly happened in 1986. Uh, so the zone of discretion may shrink, but there might still be an, an authorized population that requires some form of transition relief. Uh, it's also the case, and in our reform proposals, we talk about other means of of, that are important to the president's capacity to manage the system humanely and justly, which would include mechanisms that would help prevent a shadow population from arising again. It, it is the case that large-scale illegal immigration from Mexico is at an end, but that doesn't mean that immigration outside the law won't persist in, in some way. And if you combine the the refugee flows from Central America and then in, in the future, refugee flows the result of climate change, who knows what the landscape will look like. And, and so the forms of management through discretion that we describe are likely to still be relevant. And, and our argument is that a reform proposal uh, should include ways of managing those unforeseeable or potentially foreseeable events, not just through exclusion, detention, enforcement, but also through... Uh, analogs to parole that allow a president to admit people for humanitarian reasons and even put them on uh, a, a path to some kind of permanent status under certain circumstances. And managing programs of that sort, we think, require executive governance and executive power. As you describe what you call the, the enforcement model here, which Adam talked about, the book seems to describe that as almost a rational project in the sense that it's part of a view of immigration as probationary. Someone comes in, if they behave and do the right thing, they can become a citizen. But if not, we'll say, eh, we made a mistake and we should ask you to go home. An awful lot of recent literature on immigration um, sees deportation in a very different light. It sees it as part and parcel of a repressive carceral project directed primarily at persons of color. I wonder how you would take that critique of our current system into account as you describe the deportation power. The way we would think about it is to separate out kind of an overall theory about the political economy of immigration law from, in some ways, from a discussion of the particular regulatory tools that get used in order to advance that political project. So I think that the, the critiques about immigration laws, you know, racist origins and continuing role in disadvantaging and repressing people of color are powerful but I don't think they're really limited only to a critique of deportation policy. They're really shot through the whole system, through every aspect of it. It's a part, it's part and parcel of exclusion. In fact, that's where it began with the Chinese exclusion laws. It's part and parcel of the system of immigration detention that we live with today. I think we embrace those critiques and we want to bring them on board in our account. But when we think about the deportation power, I guess I'd go back in a way to first principles. And I think our, our book, you suggest that we describe it as a kind of a rational project. I think what we're suggesting is that descriptively, what's happened over the course of the 20th century is we've moved from a, a model of regulated migration that imagined most migrants, when they took up residence, as, as permanent residents, welcome to stay for as long as they want, to a model where migrants are 
um, held in a probationary status for a prolonged period of time. Now, our description of that change is not necessarily an endorsement of it. And I think both of us have serious reservations about the extent to which the immigration system today leaves immigrants in a state of insecurity for prolonged periods of time, sometimes for their entire lives, and also about the way in which that insecurity can result in enforcement power being brought to bear in their lives, often for the most trivial of reasons. So those aspects of the way the probationary system operates um, today, I think, trouble both of us. But if we kind of go back to the first principles of immigration regulation, if, if what you're asking is, you know, should we reimagine an immigration world without deportation? I mean, it's beyond the orbit of our book, but it is a complicated question because I think um, in a world where um, the Supreme Court is endorsed and you know American politics is where, as well as the politics of nearly every other large receiving state, has committed itself to the project of restricting migration, right? Which is a, a necessarily exclusionary project. It, it is difficult to imagine the construction of a regulatory regime that enforces an underlying ideal of restrictive immigration, yet in which deportation plays no role whatsoever. If I could just add to that, Alex, and say that one of our goals in the early parts of the book that describe the rise of this probationary system is to show that that is precisely what we have, where immigration status is largely contingent. And that to, that helps us to explain why the president and the executive branch have so much power over immigration policy uh, in the United States today. Uh, that then links to a critique that we make at the end of the book about how that contingency, that probationary nature of the system is a recipe for domination. And if we look at our shadow system as it has played out in the last several decades, that's precisely what the legal structure enables. Now, whether that has arisen because of an interest in preserving uh, uh, a white country or out of an interest in oppressing uh, minorities, uh, black and, and brown people, is a question that I think you have to ask with respect to specific historical contexts. And it's very clear in our book that there are different threads that have shaped the political economy of immigration policy, including the desire to exclude the Chinese, to exclude uh, Mexicans at the, the southern border, to maintain an exploitable labor force largely uh, Mexican and non-white laborers, but that there are also a lot of moments of uh, relief and reconstruction and openness. So it's an enormously complex political economy, and our interest is in explaining the basis for the power of the executive branch as it has uh, evolved over time, and then figuring out how to reform that in the interests of the humanitarian and due process and other sorts of goals that, that we share with the people who are making those same critiques. You propose at the end of the book uh, the need for a, what you say is a new politics of immigration that moves away from the enforcement model that you think has taken hold here in the last part of the 20th century and into the 21st century. What would that new politics of immigration look like? I think that's the million-dollar question. And I, I think that one of the reasons I think it's imperative to think through how to structure executive branch discretion is that 
I'm skeptical of the possibility of legislative transformation, though though maybe we will see that in, in 2021. Maybe the stars have finally aligned for that purpose. And among the reasons I'm skeptical is back to the premise of your last question, which is that there is a punitive um, tendency or a punitive streak at the heart of uh, American immigration policy. And I think that is in part what is driving the rise of the deportation regime. And it's deeply connected, at least in the late 20th century, to the the logic of criminal uh, justice, um, mass incarceration, all of the, the factors that produced uh, what we're grappling with today uh, in that system as well. So a new politics of immigration could appeal to a a history of immigrant inclusion. It could appeal to the movement uh, for racial justice that has taken hold in the United States. And a lot of criminal justice reform bills actually link immigration and criminal justice reform. And and that's that's a possible coalition that could lead to a different way of thinking about immigration and immigrants as not deserving of the same kinds of punitive treatment uh, that are critiqued in the in the criminal justice system. It could also contain strands of mutual benefit. And, and you see that in a lot of rhetoric around immigration reform, but it's rhetoric that has to move from we need the brilliant scientists and computer programmers who are going to invent the next Google to uh, a more humanistic approach that is about immigrants being intertwined in the lives of Americans and being contributing members of our society. And and that basis for immigration reform would hopefully produce policies that are more flexible, dynamic, adaptable, and less likely to reproduce a, a shadow system because there are opportunities for adjustment and relief and not just uh, an intent to exclude people who might be perceived as a threat. Instead, they're human beings who um, belong in some way or another. I think another thing that we would you know, want to urge is that in a way that we, we move beyond what I think is a kind of typical contrast between, um, you know, accepting uh, the current state of affairs with its extraordinarily punitive um, enforcement measures that are a part and parcel of immigration law on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, uh, moving to fundamentally change the punitive nature um, simply by erasing particular enforcement architecture. Like this is the one version of the idea of abolished ICE is to focus on a particularly troubling institution and just do away with it. And I think one thing that our approach encourages is a kind of broadening of the lens to recognize that the the two choices are are not only whether to double down on enforcement or give up on compliance with the law, I think one of the things we're suggesting is that we need to, you know, we need to think more deeply about the overall architecture of the system and why why rates of legal compliance in immigration law have have been, you know, low historically, and what can be done in terms of the role that executive branch officials play in an affirmative policy making capacity going forward. I think this is what Christine is referring to to ameliorate the need for the punitive forms of enforcement that we see today. And I think that's a, you know, that's a conversation you see also sometimes in the criminal justice space, right? Where the thought is, let's, let's think more about um, the 
other forms of support for communities, the absence of which are part of what ends up justifying um, large criminal justice enforcement apparatuses. And similarly here, like there's just, you know, historically been too little attention to the questions of what create the demands for migration among migrants themselves, um, what create the, you know, the cycles of unauthorized migration in this country, and getting that those root causes can provide kind of a third way forward that allows you to have a functioning immigration system without the need for this massively punitive enforcement apparatus. Right. So in 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 the ideal world, you're you're painting. You have a much smaller shadow population and more fair procedures, and perhaps a softening of the probationary system that doesn't allow people to wait forever to learn whether they're members or not, or to become members more easily. But in in that world, uh, does the president as co-principal still exist? Do you ultimately view that as a healthy uh, part of a well-functioning immigration system, uh, or do you think a, a better system would be Congress? really doing what it's supposed to do in terms of making the laws and the president enforce them? We argue at the end of the book that we need to reimagine the role that the president plays to be uh, not just one of overseeing an enforcement bureaucracy and then either trying to restrain those officials through uh, through enforcement priorities and measures like DACA or unleash them to advance this punitive vision, but instead to take advantage of the virtues of executive governance, which include the ability to respond to changing dynamics on the ground. And one thing I think that we can be certain of is that we won't know what exactly the immigration challenges of the future will look like. I think we have a sense before I mentioned, obviously, the um, the streams that are coming from Central America right now, but also the effects that climate change will have on the movement of people and how that might impact who's trying to enter the United States and how. And uh, and labor uh, labor market dynamics change as well. And so this is a role for express delegation to uh, an executive branch to, to manage these phenomena, to have the power to do so in a way that's not just about uh, trying to exclude or detain the people who might seek entry or to look away when there are workers entering, but there are no visas for those workers, but instead to, to have the power to change the number of people who can be um, admitted or to admit those who are, are fleeing emergencies uh, without having to go through proving that they're refugees under the definitions of the law. Um, and and then to, uh, to put those kinds of people on the road to a form of permanent status so that they don't become contingent, they don't recreate a shadow system that looks slightly different than the one that we've had for the last 40 years. Adam Cox and Christina Rodriguez, thanks so much for being with us today. The book is really an extraordinary book because I think it will affect the way every person who teaches immigration law and other people who read it and think about immigration law will, will see the president's role in a different light than they had before. Thank you for having us. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Tempest Tossed. Our producer and engineer is Sahil Ansari, and our music is composed by Eli Alenikov. 